and welcome back to a new episode of Games in Schools and Libraries. This is Kathy Mercury. Glad to be talking with everybody tonight. And especially, I have an amazingly well-rounded, interesting guest, Doug Shaw. Doug, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Kathleen. Yeah, so Doug reached out um, to be on the show to talk about his book, Social Nonsense, uh, which I'm very much looking forward to talking more about because uh, I love late night party games, especially uh, ones that aren't necessarily published in boxes, but the kinds of games that uh, may have been around for a long time and that are just always creating interesting experiences. And you wrote a book about social nonsense. Before we get to that, uh, why don't you introduce yourself and tell everybody about yourself and what you do? Uh, My name is Doug Shaw. I'm a professor at the University of Northern Iowa. I also do uh, training for teachers, although training for teachers sounds kind of weird, but it's professional development for teachers using techniques from improv. I uh, directed an improv troupe of college students for 12 years at uh, the number one education institution in Iowa. And when they went out and became teachers, they told me that a lot of their skill at teaching came from stuff they learned at being an improv troupe. So that's kind of where I got my interest in combining these two things. Well, and I can see that because especially as a teacher, you know, I always say good teachers teach kids first and then content. And if you're so focused on your content, you know, it's it's a script. You know, I mean, there may be yeah. like, you know, moments of flexibility, but basically it's what you expect. But especially when you're working with kids, there's a lot of moments that happen that can take go to really interesting places if you have the time and the ability to recognize that. And I think from an improv stance, if you have that sort of like yes and mentality whether you're discussing something interesting and complex or whether you're trying to get them to immerse themselves in some sort of activity, I could absolutely see why a comfort and proficiency with improv might lend itself very well to teaching, especially for new teachers. What a confidence builder. Absolutely. And uh, the kind of listening you do as an improv person is very important when you're listening to students as well. Yeah. Well, because before we talked, um, I was sharing that I went to NASAGA, the North American Simulation and Gaming Association, uh, their their conference in November, and there's a lot of people who um, do work with games, and um, and quite a few who work use improv, both either in education or as corporate trainers. And there was one activity where uh, my partner and I had to basically present some information, and he was really into improv. So we quickly worked out uh, under his direction how we would do, you know, present this topic, but where one of us was sitting and was talking, and then the other person would tap in, and then we just kind of kept like spiraling and like building on the story from there. And it was really, really funny, and it was fun, uh-huh. and you know, it got a great response, and we were able to work everything in in a meaningful way. But still, that improv structure let us help connect it to the audience more than just, okay, so what we had to do was, you know, it's much more engaging, I think, for all involved. Yeah, very cool. Yeah. Um, How did you get interested in improv? Well, I had borrowed a book from a friend about improv. And then I asked a different friend, hey, what's this improv thing like? Because I know you did it. And he got all matrix on me and said, no one can explain it to you. You have to experience it for yourself. So I got some friends together. He did a workshop. I was hooked. Then I moved to a different state and took an improv class. And the teacher said, how did you get an improv? And I told him the story. Mm-hmm. He goes, oh, Dick never returned that book to me. <laughs> so that was weird. That's crazy. That's so cool, though. So what was it about improv that 
drew you in from the very beginning. I felt when I was doing it, I was doing what I was supposed to do. And it's, you know, we, we all pretend starting at kindergarten. But usually as an adult, you don't get to play pretend anymore. And I'd found this socially acceptable way to play pretend. Hmm. That's interesting. Well, and especially considering, you know, that you're that you work within the math profession, it's not necessarily what people would necessarily expect, you know, as far as, you know, when people think of mathematicians and then, you know, improv. It's not something that normally goes together. Not in people's mind, but maybe the problem is our expectations. Oh, absolutely. Oh, don't get me wrong. Yeah. <laughs> don't get me wrong. And Well, it's like board gaming, right? You go to a board game convention or you're just a gaming group and you're often surprised what people do for a living. Mm-hmm. Just the variety. Yeah. No, I totally get that. I totally get that. Um, so then when you're talking, so having a lot of improv experience, obviously when you're working with other teachers um, and other students, what are some of the things that you try to convey when you're doing? Because we've got your book and we're going to get to your book, but I think especially yeah. for improv, it's such an interesting, um, it's something that scares a lot of people, I think. Well, we're not, we're not doing theater in the workshops. So what I teach is it's called applied improv and it's this international thing where we take some of the lessons we learn from improv and apply it not to theater. Mm-hmm. So, uh, the th- and I wouldn't say that I cover these or anything. It's more of an experiential learning. Mm-hmm. Uh, thinking, listening carefully, reacting quickly, and when you have a choice, making the bolder choice. So we do a lot of practice developing that, and people have come away saying they're better teachers just with those three things. So wait, what are they again? Listening carefully, mm-hmm. huh, reacting irony. quickly, Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> reacting quickly, uh-huh. and making the bolder choice. Well, because it was making the bolder choice that I really hooked on to, which is where the other two um, faded a bit. Um, so that resonates with you? Yeah. Well, yeah. Um, because is it something you do or something you really want to do? Uh, something I, I like to think something I do. Uh, uh-huh. I, I teach middle school gifted kids. And I always say uh-huh. that for me, my goal is to teach them to struggle because they're used to, here's the assignment, do it the right way, turn it in, get a good grade, never think about it. But uh-huh. in all the work that I do is here's something you're not going to be great at. And how can you work through this process to get better at this thing that you're trying to do? How can you... Right. Um, how can you understand that imperfection, that that incompletion, that that can be considered success? That success can be found in incremental improvements as opposed to I got an A plus and I have all this extra credit on top of it. So making bolder choices for them is very scary, even when I give them as much reassurance as possible that you won't fail from a grade perspective, as long as, you know, if they're trying, you know, then that's what I want to see. It's when they give up and they shell up and they, you know, retract. That's the part where then, you know, I come in and trying to work with them to make bolder choices, whether it's when we're, you know, doing like cinematography and film in terms of like what their stories are or in game design, obviously. So, um, but making the bolder choices, I think is, I think that's really hard for a lot of teachers, especially when you get into the profession for a long time. Right. So in a sense, your problem is the same as the problem of the gifted kid, because it sounds like you're both having difficulty taking those risks. Um, 
Well, I always I always say my job is to push them off a cliff and then if I don't catch them, then at least to help them learn how to fall down, <laughs> you know, and say, yay, I land. Um, uh-huh. But every kid is different and it's never, it's never easy. It's never, it's never a script for me. And in doing what I'm doing and trying to, you know, present kids with things they won't be good at and they won't necessarily uh-huh. be successful at, but how can I have them, what do I need to do to help them find and see success from their perspective and it's a really really hard question um and it's really hard in practice as well sometimes because sometimes no matter what i do and all the external out you know all the external markers of success can be presented to them but if they don't feel successful um because their game didn't work the way they wanted then they don't consider themselves successful and that's never not hard for me do you feel that they have less practice at failing than people their age who haven't been in that kind of gifted lifestyle? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, I, and I tell them, and we talk about it, and they understand and they agree in theory, you know, that this, the real world, they can understand that there, there's no A pluses in the real world. When you get a job, there's not something that you do. And you, if you want to do anything cool, interesting, where you have any kind of agency, you know, no one will give you an A plus and then you put something aside and then you move on to the next thing. Like you're never done. I'll never be done (laughs) as a teacher until the day I retire. I'll never have a winter break, a summer break, anytime where I'm not thinking I'm not working on something. And so um, wanting them to understand that, you know, if you, you know, to create the life they want that they need to, you know, be willing to take this idea, take risks to make it and to be able to keep working on it and focusing on it until it turns into the thing that they want it to be. And or at least that they have to say that they're done with or that they have to end it or they have to just call it finished, even if they don't feel like it's as perfect as it can be. So having my students shift success from a sort of idealized notion of perfectionism to a messier, more human approach to um, iterative processes and and manners of approach in terms of how they think about what they want to make. So right, so they they come into your class thinking of product, and it sounds like you're saying you want them to start thinking of process. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And in fact, in my school district, we're supposed to have for their grades, um, 30% of their grade is supposed to be process and 70% is supposed to be the product. So basically 30% formative, 70% summative, but I have mine at 50, 50 because uh-huh. both matter to me. I, there's no game that you could slap together in a night that's going to be good in any way, shape or form. And, um, but also too, at the end, you know, you have to work towards something. There has to be some sort of goal in mind. And when you're working with other people, if you don't spend time paying attention to process, you wind up with a bunch of divas just screaming at each other. Right, right, right. And it's funny, too, because even the things that kids are picking up on, um, they said, I heard one group said, "My our game is a mess. And the other said, it's okay that it's a mess. It's supposed to be a mess because this is the first one they've made. And so moments like that make me really happy because I am very intentional about kind of programming in some languages to like, you know, some scripts into their heads as far as, you know, different ways of thinking about things that they may not have on their own sort of stumbled into or had the 
ability uh-huh. to sort of come to that realization. So by intentionally kind of interjecting the language of these sort of design mindsets, trying to help them broaden their view and their approach of themselves and also the approach that they have towards whatever type of product or what they're working on. So, yeah, it's endlessly interesting to me, especially because like right now I've been doing it this way for a long time and I'm really ready to kind of throw apart like what the heart and soul of what I've kind of been doing for so long. I, this is really a podcast about you, by the way. Don't think I've forgotten. <laughs> but um, my approach has been about basically for the second quarter is there's one game they work on and they iterate and iterate and iterate and iterate on it. But instead of doing that much time on one project, I'm thinking about just doing smaller games and then doing this type of game and this type of game and this type of game. And then at the end that they would pick one of those games that they wanted to go back to and rework on it. And that would be like, I guess their final kind of culminative piece. If I even need to have that, I think I'm not even sure. So it would certainly help their, their feeling of accomplishment if they leave with something that they feel they finished. Right. Well, and I feel too, if they make, instead of we do, we're doing a little game now, then there's a bigger game later. But if they have four smaller games, there will be aspects of each that they will probably like and having a sense of and and doing more products will help overall in terms of the quality of their games and what they're doing. So I'm hoping that um, that they will see more success because they will have more success across a wider range of uh, game ideas. So and tools. Yes. Yes. And different approaches. My friend got an MFA at NYU. I'm so sorry. And, uh, my friend got an MFA, a Master of Fine Arts at NYU, mm-hmm. and uh, at first she was really resenting that they made her do projects that had she had no interest in as far as her art. She was a painter. Mm-hmm. She wanted to do paintings, but they made her write and, and illustrate a children's book, and she had no interest in that and other things. Mm-hmm. But after that year of doing all these little projects that were different, when she went back to her passion, she said it was like night and day. Hmm. Just to, that's what you're saying resonated with me. She took all these aspects of the smaller process right. projects and they wound up in the soup. Yeah. And um, one of my friends who went to design school had a professor who in took two different approaches to two classes. One, he had them do two projects, but spent a lot of time on them. The other did uh, more projects, but went through them much quicker. And the quality of work was much better in the class that did a lot of different projects Um, because they just were able to just, like you said, develop different skill sets, you know, different approaches and, um, and then just got better at doing it as opposed to just like looking at staring at the one thing over and over and over again. So yeah, I'm excited. Um, I've got an idea for like the first chunk in terms of how I'm going to do it. So, um, we shall see. What are you thinking for that first chunk? Um, so usually after we do this race game, we play more games. And I do think that's important. It helps build their sort of gaming literacy of like different types of ideas from various games that they can use in their own. But then um, I have them, we talk about theme. And so when we research theme, it's a little bit dry. It's a little bit, not dry, but there's like, they're looking for ideas for themes. But instead of having them just research theme in of itself. um, Wait, no, when you um, say the word theme is like, just collecting all collecting candy cards is that a theme? No, um, well, just more like candy what's the would theme be the of theme. Candyland? You know, so like, what's the story world? So if they, they wanted to be about candy, then they would research candy. If they wanted to be about coal mines, research coal mines. Okay. Um, but a friend of mine is starting 
a game company called Travel Buddy Games. Hey, Josh. And I love the idea of it. It's just the idea that there's small little games that are very friendly to, you know, travelers. And as he said, um, well, either way, just, you know, like the kind of games you could like take with you in a backpack and go to a hostel and then put it on the table and play with games and play with others. And so, um, but small little games and they're based on actual places in the world. So I'm going to take that. And so instead of having them research theme towards the one big game you're going to do is they're going to have to make a little game. So probably cards and some bits, but a little game based on a place. And so looking at how, so again, it may not be like the perfect little game, but what is it about this place that is interesting to you? And how can we make a game about this? And then after we do that, then we can maybe start to play with mechanics and then, you know, some other whole new game that they would make as it related to various game mechanics, whether I would, I don't know, give them, I don't even know. I haven't even gotten that far, but, um, and then not just, and then trying to center this on their experience too, and understanding the needs of their users. Cause that's a big thing as far as, you know, design thinking goes, understand the needs of users. So yeah, there's lots of different, so the first chunk, it's almost like, and again, this is a podcast about you and your book, um, <laughs> but, um, you know, let's, let's take it where it goes. Yeah. That's very, very improv of you. Very, very good. Very, very good. Um, no, so I'm I'm comfortable with this first stage because Josh and I actually designed a game for his company um, a few months ago. And so I'm familiar with him, familiar with this process. And um, he sent me at one point a list of all the places that he was interested in. And I looked at the list and I said, or <laughs> this is the place that I'm interested in. And then we ended up making a game from there. And it was all um, just based on the tulip fields of the Netherlands. And because it's just they're it's, they're incredibly beautiful when photographed from above when they're in bloom. It's just these massive broad brush strokes strikes ugh, strokes of color um, on the countryside. They're just gorgeous, and uh, so yeah. So we ended up making a game about that. So you know how can you take the, a place and turn it into something? And some of my one of my best games came from I was given a very specific person to make a game about, and uh-huh. in the end. Um, the game is no longer about that person, but because I was given that challenge and really had to think, what does it mean to be a game about this? It opened up this whole other new avenue for me in terms of, I designed a type of game I never thought it would have designed. And it's one of my favorites and I love it. Well, constraints really help with the creativity. Yes. Yes. If I told you to design a game, but you're not allowed to use the letter E in the rules you're going to come up with something different than you ordinarily would have ever come up oh, with. Oh, absolutely. And and so for my students, for this preliminary race game that they're doing, I had this giant box of cardboard bits of just, you know, games, bits from other games that I'd been given or that I had scrapped. And it was just this unholy giant box of mixed up stuff. And I looked at it, and especially after thinking about this workshop that I did um, earlier, is I knew I needed to, I sorted them and actually, the students would like do it with me a little bit before class, and they loved it. They thought it was a big puzzle. And this giant cardboard box of bits, probably about two-thirds of it, we're actually able to sort all the bits into similar types. And they're in baggies. And so then for this race game, kids could pick um, components from two different bags, no more than 30 components total. And it was all about how can you use these components instead of making your own cards or whatever else. Like what kind and, – and really, if I had – gotten them organized ahead of time, I would have pre-made bags, given those, hey, this is, these are the pieces that you need to make a game with, and then see what happens. But we didn't have time for me to be that structured from the beginning. So. So when you're talking about intended audience, mm-hmm. uh, 
do you teach at a junior high or a K-12? Yeah, it's middle school. So I, I do seven. Well, this is all seventh grade. So I have about 80 seventh graders right now. Okay, because it would be really cool if their if their intended audience was third graders, then you could actually play test at a nearby elementary oh, school. Oh, that would be fun. Right now, so you actually have real live third graders playing their games while they watch the third graders play them. No, that's a super fun idea, especially because my district's pretty small and there is an elementary within walking distance. Hmm. I'm writing this down. That's really cool. That's, yeah, that's, that's the hokey pokey. That's what we're talking about. <laughs> no! That's a, well... I'm sure glad that you had all kinds of technical difficulties, but we hung in there to make this recording happen. <laughs> this is immensely helpful for me. Um, Very cool. Well, let's talk about your book then. Um, okay. So you came up, so the book that you have is called Social Nonsense. And okay. I love the sort of origin story of how this book came to be, because I think it's something that all of us can relate to. So I... Uh... I have paid for my share of expensive dinners with friends that I love and been on my phone the whole time. Mm -hmm. uh, but what I always tend to do, and my, my friends just tolerate this, they know this is going to happen, is I always take a legal pad out at some point and play some writing or drawing or storytelling game. Mm -hmm. And I just had a couple that I liked. And then when I got involved with the Applied Improvisation Network, I found that a lot of them had these things in their pockets that they liked. And... I also noticed that whenever I was feeling alone or alienated, if one of these things would start up, it wasn't just company, but I'd kind of feel like I was friends with everybody I played with. So I started collecting them, and I was just going to write a PDF, but I'm a professor, so I can't just write something short, right? <laughs> and uh, no, I really just got into writing this book. Mm -hmm. And... When I started it, it was really crap, and I threw. I just deleted the document because it was. I write textbooks, and I was writing it like a textbook. And when I write articles, I have to write in the style of the journal. Mm -hmm. And then one day, I was at my favorite place in Cedar Falls, and I thought, just for fun, I'm going to write this book like it was me writing it mm -hmm. to an audience of myself. I just wrote it to giggle. And then the next day, I read it, and I said, "Oh, this is how I need to write the book." Oh. And so I wrote it in my own voice. And it was the first thing. I've written a lot of stuff. And this is the first thing I wrote really in my own voice, well, which is scary. Because when you read it, you're poking at my soul now. I can't pretend that I wrote it like someone else. This is, for better or for worse, this is what I, how, I, how I am when I talk. Well, and that's one thing, too, because you sent me uh, sort of a condensed uh, sample of the book. And, and certainly in the introduction, it's 100% like conversational. You know, even yeah. if you are writing, you know, to yourself, you're, this is something that you're talking to everyone else. You know, I'm, yeah. um, I'm, you know, I'm eager to start, but possibly not depending on who I am. Tell you what, <laughs> read to the first couple and try one at your next gathering. I'm confident you'll want to try more once you see what happens. You know, I mean, this is, you're absolutely right that this is like, you're, this is you saying, Hey, you can do it. You know, don't be afraid mm -hmm. to try. And I think for a book like this, that's absolutely essential because it's one thing to, present this to a willing audience of experienced people who are like, yes, more improv material. But I think it's a whole nother thing to take someone who is absolutely skeptical and trying to convert them via text to do something that may be well out of their comfort zone or what they think right. is out of their comfort zone. I, I took improv out of the title. I mean, the original title was restaurant improv, 
uh, fun things you can do between the time you order the food and the time it comes because people are thinking, I don't want to do whose, whose line is it anyway. Mm-hmm. And really what this is, is it's collaborative creativity. It's ways that you and a friend who never do creative things, who don't think of yourselves as creative, there's something about when you do these games together that you come out with things that you're just delighted by that neither of you would have thought you could do on your own. Right. Because, of course, you couldn't do it on your own. The whole point of this, the stuff is that interaction. Yeah, and... You also have, you know, that that like that that was one thing, especially like the collaboration piece and how much of this, you know, is I say something silly in some way or format. You also say something silly in relationship to me, but kind of the magic special sauces. Sometimes you can actually derive real meaning from that, and I think that's where more often than not, a lot of the book, a lot of like what you're doing here. I mean, has the potential from just like entertainment. But there's definitely potential here where you could get really in-depth and as far as, you know, like building relationships and, and community with others. I have. I have. We did a game called Fast Food Joyce. It's this process where, uh, well, we were talking about process product, but I'll tell you, the, the product is that without even trying, you and your friends have written something that sounds like James Joyce wrote it. Mm-hmm. And I got a group of people, most of whom hadn't met each other, and we did it via email. So some people in different countries, we wrote this James Joyce thing together. It took seven days because of the email via passing things around. And we're all friends now. Like there's this immense feeling of bonding that there's this thing in the world that none of us could have created on our own. And it isn't like each one of us wrote one-seventh of it. It's not like that. It's, I, I don't know if, I, don't, I feel weird when I get into the spiritual stuff. You'll notice in the book, I really backed off anything spiritual because mm-hmm. I'm not comfortable talking about that. But a question that we sometimes ask when we play is, if none of us wrote this, then who did? Hmm. Yeah, I love fast food joints. If this was a podcast with six people on it, I'd insist we play right now. <laughs> um. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, you know, and just and then of course like my mind immediately goes to, you know, how others could use this cuz one thing that I did earlier in the year was I mean my one of my favorite uh games just of any game is Eat Poop You Cat or what became Telestrations and it's had other names, you know, throughout time, but basically someone writes something, the next person draws it. And then they fold over the paper so the next person just sees the drawing. And then that's it. That's it. That's in the book. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, I love it. I love it. It's one of my go tos. It's great. Yeah, yeah. And um, I mean, and so I was on a podcast once called Five Games for Doomsday. And what are the five games you would save? And that was actually a really hard question because there's so many reasons why you'd want to save various games. But some of my best, most favorite moments have been with my close friends playing that game. So much so that I've like. Um, I've had birthday when I did like a brunch for my birthday and I made all my girlfriends play this with me or, um, I did that at dinner for my birthday. <laughs> See, that's so cool. Um, man, yeah, well, North, Northern Iowa is not that far away. We should hang out sometime, <laughs> but, um, but then also, 
I, I presented that to teachers and some had actually heard of it um, and some had used it, but then others hadn't. And they just had such a blast. And it's one of those things where there's so many things like if I wanted to, for my gifted kids, if I had nothing else to do, I would say compare blank to a spider and all the different things, all the different ways that they could just like let their minds go uh-huh. and try to like come up with ways to do the spider. And there was one activity in the book where, um, especially you talked about like, uh, I don't remember if it was questions, but another one, but this could happen for another is for so many, which is once all of the obvious kind of choices are presented, then what do people say? You know, like, what are the yeah. things people will just pull out of nowhere once they're, you know, the kind of like the standard stock answers have already been presented. And, right. um, and I really, really love that too, because especially when you get to that expected level is kind of like what you've been programmed or, you know, familiar with, but it's once right. you really get kind of digging down deep is where you can yeah. pull out all kinds of really interesting ideas and, you know, depths of creativity, but also too, like you said earlier, when you have that ability to make these sort of like really deep realizations about it from a more fundamental level. Yeah. There's a, I definitely tease that aspect in the book. I just wasn't comfortable with starting to talk all mindfulness and things like that. I mean, it's just kind of, it's in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because there, you, like you said, um, practicing flow and Zen mindfulness. Well, let's well then just go into flow a little bit. We don't have to get you know really get into Zen, but go into flow. Well, one, of, one of my friends, Gary Gute, is a professor at UNI, and flow is what his research is. Mm-hmm. And he took a look at this book, and he was like, "We could talk." And now we're friends now because it's clear. Uh, yeah. So, so what do you the, mean by flow? Flow is that state where you lose time. Because you're so involved with what you're doing, time is meaningless. Mm-hmm. And it's not this magical thing. It's something we do. It's, it's the whole idea of why does 50 minutes seem so long when you're in one of my math classes? <laughs> and then when there's this person you're in love with and it, they tell you that they love you and you just look at them and then you only have an hour together before you have to leave for your next class mm-hmm. and that hour takes nothing right right so it's you're in this flow where you're just not where time is just kind of not there maybe i'm not describing it well cuz i'm not an expert on it no it makes sense so if gary's me. listening to this i apologize but yeah <laughs> yeah well i mean cuz also too people talk about flow like in terms of like playing games you know where it's yeah. you know and flow is that state between when it's too stressful and it's boring. And right. when you're in a good game flow, you can yeah. just play that game forever. <laughs> Not to overuse Bejeweled, but let me just tell you, I can I can burn through a sure. good hour on some Bejeweled if I really need to, you know? <laughs> I also play... Yeah, I've, I've certainly had the experience with... Uh, oh, God, I'm blanking on the name. Seven Wonders. Mm-hmm. That's the name of the game, right? Yeah. With With the cards and the little... Yeah. So my friend uh, and I would play the two-player game of Seven Wonders. Mm-hmm. Uh, my friend Stuart visits me. Uh, I teach in Ann Arbor for six weeks out of the year. Okay. And one weekend, my best friend from kindergarten comes to visit me there. Oh, cool. And there have been evenings where he takes out Seven Wonders, and then all of a sudden it's like, what? Where? How, how did it become this time? Huh. Yeah. 
so that's probably the right level. Of, I don't know. Is that a really uncool game to mention? No, you talk, <laughs> I, no, You know what? Uh, I, uh, there's a I'm lot sure of you played it in the, in the original Celtic, right, Doug? No, no, yeah, <laughs> no. I mean, honestly, if you're like, I mean, I was talking about Monopoly, and you know, it's always you know kind of traditional for gamers to like hey, Monopoly, you know, that sort of yeah. thing. But you know what? If it's a game that you and your family like love playing together and you, you're sitting around the table playing this game for hours and hours, you know, how in the world, you know, could I say that that's meaningless or that's not a good a good use of your time? You know, that's, you know, I mean, I, there's I, I would say for me one time I played uh, the game No Thanks with three of my dear, dear friends in gaming. And okay. it's a simple card game, but it's a really good one. And we played No Thanks for two and a half hours and just okay. laughed our heads off and just all these crazy combinations and different things because we were really, really playing No Thanks for two and a half hours. So, I mean, certainly as a teacher, game designer, you know, you want to create those moments, you know, and I think that's sort of an interesting question in these in your book is you're looking at some of these different types of activities and seeing how others have taken an activity and it's become a moment it's become a thing there's been a realization is there any advice you have for teachers or librarians or anyone you know wanting to use this is there any advice or caveats you might give towards trying to maybe force something too hard or what advice would you give to let a moment where you think you know, something for people to maybe recognize, to help them recognize when it's happening as it's happening so that that moment can happen? Well, there's plenty of advice on page 137. But aside from that, uh, and my big advice for this is people, especially teachers, tend to over-explain mm-hmm. to the point where nobody wants to try the game because it's too complicated. So, for example, let's use the one you talked about uh where you draw a picture and then you write a sentence, then you draw a picture and then you write a sentence, right? Mm-hmm. The way I facilitate that is I say, okay, write a song lyric. I like song lyrics because of the imagery, right? I say, write a song lyric. Yeah. And I don't tell them anymore. And I say, okay, pass it. Now you're going to illustrate that song lyric and fold the paper back. But I don't say anything at once. Just that's the next thing that happens. And then they pass. Then I say, okay, now pass it. And then, of course, you get the rhythm and you play the game. I think that's a really smart approach because so having, for all of these, don't over-explain it because yeah. that kills the flow. Because I definitely have done that. <laughs> I yeah. definitely have over-explained that. And the other thing too is in that game, when once you explain it and people see that blank line where they have to write something, you know, when I did this with uh, teachers, is I found online some like list of like a hundred quotes and I printed it in small enough font. So all these stupid quotes would fit on the back of the paper of a, of a separate of the instructions I typed up for them to Uh do. And it was really to help with that first initial, like, Oh my gosh, what am I going to say? Now, granted, if you say, if you're playing this with middle school kids and you say, write a song lyric, I don't know that you always want to give them that, but. Oh God. Yeah. Because I was doing this with uh, ninth graders, right? Mm -hmm. So not middle school, ninth graders. Mm Mm-hmm. And I said, write a song lyric, but I didn't say any more. And then they did the whole thing. One kid wrote, it was the summer of 69. Right. And then the next kid was, unfortunately, a really good artist. (laughs) (laughs) (coughs) 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 Yep. 
Yeah, no mistakes there. No ambiguity in that picture. Oh, my gosh. That's <laughs> hilarious. Now, I tell you, moments like that late at night with my friends, that's hilarious. But I, yeah, the classroom is a little... I got tenure. <laughs> that's fine, then. No, that's hilarious. I mean, and honestly, I even joke about how there's a magical, like, rainbow bridge that when our kids get to the high school, there's all kinds of things that they're allowed to do and say and have, you know, on their computer. But when we're in middle school, like, it's just, it's a little different. That's all, you know, just because of the age and, you know, what's appropriate for them. But it is kind of funny so sometimes. when I do improv workshops for middle school students. Oh, yeah? Uh, so what I, what I will do often is I will drop an F-bomb really early on. Okay. And then they're all shocked. And I say, look, we're going to do some improv now. This isn't, this is a theater thing. This is an art form. And I don't want you to swear gratuitously, but if something slips out, you can't stop the scene. And then I make them all scream the F word at the top of their lungs. Huh. To get it out. Yeah. Right. And I say, now, if you just keep doing it because it's to do it, then no, you're not allowed to do that. But if you're doing a scene and it just comes out organically, I'm not your teacher. I'm not going to stop you. Mm-hmm. And that now, now I'm not talking about the stuff I do with uh, social nonsense. I'm just talking about straightforward improvisation. Sure, theater. sure, sure. Yeah. Um, well, <laughs> it was funny because with my students, when we're talking about uh, with my students, when we're talking about uh, board game mechanics, and we get the chit pull, and just to like, they're <laughs> like, and the, their ears kind of perk up, and I said, now I want you to say the word chit really slowly and then they're like shit and then they're like oh oh," you know and it's funny you know whatever and you know every time and they laugh and i laugh you know um and so one time we're like we're making like like chit jokes you know like oh like um all the chits are all over the floor and oh you know look at all the chits in here like we're just being silly and this one kid said there's a lot of shit everywhere (laughs) I can't even look. And it was, and, I, and he then he went, oh, and I put his hands over his head, mouth, and like, oh my god! I'm like, and I was laughing so hard, and I was like, buddy, it's okay. Like, I, I mean, I feel like I kind of was pushing it, like not necessarily you there. I mean, you're you're not in trouble. It's really okay. But like the look on that kid's face when instead of saying chits, he actually said, yeah. you know, shit, and said like, oh my gosh, it was so funny. And um, poor Eric our lovely editor, he might have to bleep me because that's his favorite thing to do. But I've actually been very good this episode, Eric. I would just like to mention, you can keep that part if you want or not. Um, (laughs) No, that's funny, though. Um, Well, and I guess, too, especially when you're looking at, you know, all of us put, you know, like, the different types of levels of restraints. Okay, actually, let me go back to my previous question, then. Is there any advice you have on what things people shouldn't do or don't seem to be as helpful or things to avoid trying to do when you're facilitating. Yeah. Uh, well, I think as a teacher, you know how to do this already, but just in general, kind of read the room. Like for example, uh, so in my book, I give each per each game has a level mm-hmm. and people think sometimes I'm talking difficulty level and I'm not, I'm talking emotional risk. Mm hmm. So if you're with a group of people who are feeling very guarded, I would not play a level four with game with them off the bat. Mm-hmm. And the level one games have no emotional risk that people can play them and have a good time and they're not going to reveal anything of themselves. 
or more than you would think, because right. we often do wind up accidentally revealing more when you play any of these games. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. I was dealing with, uh, so I was doing a workshop for uh, STEM kids, and there was a bunch of counselors, because they're sixth graders, so you always have goons, you know. Mm-hmm. But the kids were into it, so they were they were behaving perfectly. So all the counselors sat at a table and played their played with. So they participated. And then I was and I thought these kids are doing great. So I did a level four game with them. And all of a sudden, I hear crying from the counselor table. And so I kind of walked up there, and they were all really emotional, and only one was crying, but the other ones were touched. And the crying one looked at me and said, I've worked with these people for 10 years and I never knew them until now. Hmm. So my advice then to answer your question is I wouldn't start off with that game. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, well, Unless you're willing to deal with the ramifications of that. Yeah. Um, I, I sort of ran into... It's horrible when I laugh because I'm seeing these volume levels on my computer screen. <laughs> And when I laugh, I see these little, like, staccato things, and I get self-conscious. Oh, nah. I mean, I laugh like a cackling witch. I'm like, bah! You know, it's fine. It can be worse than me, man. Um, I laugh like Ernie. <laughs> well, I laugh like the yeah. uh, Bellatrix Lestrange, so it's cool. Um, <laughs> it's You know, she's just misunderstood. I'm kidding. Terrible person. Um, I, had a good, I had a good thought there, and it was on something good, too. Now that now that the Joker movie made money, Lestrange should be the next one he makes. Oh gosh, yeah. I mean, Lestrange. Right. Just don't make her sympathetic. Um. I mean, I, I have a shirt with her picture on it. I guess I can't say too much there, really. No. What was the thing, Eric? T- take all this out as I'm hemming and hawing here. Um. <coughs> um. There was something. Mm, I don't know. What else can we talk about? Maybe it'll come to me. Okay. Well. Uh. Let's see. Oh, so if you would like to see examples of some of these games mm. and uh, like example output and all sorts of fun stuff, the book has a website. Oh, that's good. Socialnonsense.org. I think, I hope people, um, well, one, I've really enjoyed talking with you about all of this because it's funny. I don't, we haven't really talked that much about the specific activities, but more about the experience, which I think is the Uh point, you know, that there's the structures in there vary, obviously, in terms of intensity and all that. But um, what I think is so great here is, you know, when we're talking about the ways we want to collaborate creatively, connect as humans, entertain ourselves, find meaning, you know, deepen relationships, there's a lot of things that can happen with very, very simple materials you know, using this. And if we can, you know, have these moments in a social setting, these are definitely ideas that people can carry over into their work in the classroom or into their work in the library. A couple of surprises. Okay. Uh, First of all, I've been hearing from parents of children with eating disorders. Yes. Where they are in a situation as a family where they have to sit at a table until the kid eats, but they're not supposed to talk about food. Right. And they found that this is a fun way to everybody sits and has a pleasant time doing this stuff while they're sitting around the table. So I'm not a doctor. I have not studied this. This is what I've been told. Mm -hmm. And the other thing I've heard about is couples are using this to reconnect. That they're, uh, 
their kids get old enough. Because when you have a little kid, of course, your entire life is, is talking about the kid. And then the kid doesn't need you to talk about them all the time. They Now, where's your relationship? What's going on? And this, is, this stuff has been helping couples reconnect, I found. That's really cool. I mean, and, and that was not intentional. I, that's just, wow. Right. But I love that, you know, it's possible. I love that there's something that can help people, you know, when they don't know how to, get, not necessarily don't know how to get started, but you just get used to routines, you get used to practices, yeah. and just to have moments where you want to be more open, more honest, have more fun with each other. But like, how do you do that? How do you get started with something like that? And I love that this provides, you know, a loose yet structured way for that to happen. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, what other ways are there out there that are this accessible? And I know of one D&D group who do it as a warm up before they play. Oh, because when you play D&D, as you know, I, I don't want to game-splain to you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but uh, there is this transition between your kind of mundane real life, which you're still bringing into you because, you know, at least in Iowa, I go to my gaming session at D&D, &D, but I've just driven through snow, and I'm still in my mind thinking of the fact that I almost skidded through a stop sign. Mm -hmm. And somehow I have to get to that and to the other space of that I'm in another world. And this D&D &D group I know say that this really helps them. Because the games are writing, drawing, and storytelling games. And they always play one of the storytelling games. And of course, they're all very short. They're designed that between the time you order the food and it comes. So they're not long. So they'll do a quick storytelling game. Mm -hmm. And then they'll play D&D. &D. That's so cool. Yeah, cause... So it feels a bit like my, my book is an airlock. <laughs> well, and for my, I was telling you too, my sister and her family... Um, when they go out to eat and there's, if there's paper nap or paper placemats, immediately flip them over and they get out crayons, pens, whatever they have, and they draw and they pass yeah. and they draw and they pass and they just, I love how that. you have the drawings just sort of, you know, whether you build onto what something has, you introduce a new element and they sort of create this own like, you know, visual world, but also sort of narrative world as each one sort of turns into its own, you know, crazy story. Not three-dimensional, but, you know, it's not linear. You know, it's all over the page. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, and then, yeah, by the time your food comes, you, you know, you look at all them, you laugh, you yeah. flip them over. And if they're really great, take them home, put them on the fridge. But uh -huh. it's really about just that moment of doing something together, building something together that I think is really amazing. Well, cool. Well, um, this has been so fun. I've really enjoyed Me it. Me too. Me too. Um, so... Your book is called Social Nonsense. Where can people get this? Okay, you can get it at socialnonsense.org. And uh, you can get it for $2 more at amazon.com. Perfect. And Or barnesandnoble.com or wherever. Mm -hmm. And then if you're in the Cedar Falls area, they uh, sell it at Limited Edition Comics, at University Books, and at Mohair Pear. And I don't think I'm missing it. Those are the three stores that sell it in... Uh, Cedar Falls, and if you want it to be sold at a bookstore in your town, have them contact there me. There you go. I'm with Ingram Spark, and we can get make that happen. That's cool. That's really, really cool. And this is, of course, in Iowa, in case people forgot. Um, just <clears throat> People always forget oh, Iowa. I'm in Missouri. It's just southern flyover <laughs> to you. That's all we are. It's fine. Um, <laughs> well, that's cool. If people yeah, but you have the city museum. I'm sorry? 
You have the city museum. The city museum, if you if people are not aware, is truly one of the eighth wonders of the world. It has to be yeah. the eighth wonder of the world. It's not a museum. It's it, there's just not a word for it, so they say museum. Yeah, no, it is uh, an uh, ten story art experiment. That's it, yeah. the most interactive thing you've ever seen in your life. Um, yeah. If you're in St. Louis, give me a buzz. I'll take you there. It's a delight. My wife broke her foot there, and her comment was, "This was worth it." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. they sell beer they got a ball pit for humans it's great um cool well um if people want to get in contact with you what's the best way to do so especially if they're interested in professional development or just learning more doug at dougshaw.com there we go and if you are interested in professional development uh dougshaw.com is the website and there's all sorts of cool stuff there it's not just an ad for professional development it is a work there's lots of neat stuff to look at and do at my website. Awesome. Awesome. Well, and then socialnonsense.org is the website for the book. Cool. Well, this has been a, another episode of Games in Schools and Libraries. I hope um, everyone gets a chance to check out the book because if it's not something that you can use in your classrooms or your library, but your library, but I have a hard time imagining that you couldn't. Um, nevertheless, something really fun to do with your friends, whether you are at a restaurant or you're just hanging out one night or it's late night at a convention. Um, there's so many things that are so good. Uh, if you want to just spend really quality time in whatever manner that looks like for you and your friends. So thanks again for listening. This is Kathleen Mercury. You can find all of my teaching resources online at KathleenMercury.com. You can reach, uh, reach out to me there. You can get in contact with me through Twitter where I'm at Mercury with seven M's. Um, I rarely post, but trying to do better about that. We all know how that goes. And until next time, I hope everybody's having a great semester and keep having fun in the classroom. And good night. Good night. Well, thank you for listening to this episode of the Games and Schools and Libraries podcast. You can find out more about us and the people who create this show over at inversegenius.com and all of our other wonderful, wonderful shows, including on board games, on RPGs, the Inverse Genius podcast, and the Room Escape Divas. We are also now joined by the Party Gamecast and Nephilim, who you might remember as Stephanie, previous co-host here on the Games and Schools and Libraries podcast, and our friend Lynn Theory. Thank you for listening. Games and Schools and Libraries is produced in association with the Georgetown County Library System. 